Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-418 of the Run Run Live podcast. It's been a busy couple of weeks since we last talked. I did jump on the ferry out of Hyannis to Nantucket for that half marathon that we were talking about last time. It was kind of fun, but also yeah, a bit of a struggle. When I first signed up for it, I thought, hey, It'll be a fun outing. I'll take my wife along or maybe some of my running buddies. But in the end, it was just me. So as a solo, I met up with the other pacers on the ferry. And I did meet some nice people in the race. It was a sunny day, beautiful day. And it was a pretty big race. I think there was like 400 people in it, uh, considering it was out on an island. This race, this race fell a week before my target race which was the Bay State Marathon. And I planned to use this race as just a final easy run. That was the plan. But with how inconsistent my training has been this summer, I wasn't feeling very excited about it. I offered to run the two-hour pace group, which would be a stroll in the park for me, but they had a greater need for the 150, so I acquiesced. And I don't run a lot of half marathons, so my math isn't great for the half marathon. A 150 half is the equivalent of a 340-ish full marathon. And while not being super challenging for where I am right now, it wouldn't be the same lark that a two-hour would. And it works out to about a 822, 823-ish pace versus a 9-ish pace. And I went in tired. My week was weird. I didn't get my tempo run in until Friday afternoon, which was probably too close to the race, so my legs were a little dead. And my whatever-it-was pain in my butt wasn't helped by that long ride down to the Cape. Uh, But I made the morning ferry with no issues, had no issues finding the pace team, finding the starting line. Uh, I did lose my pace group pretty early in this race. The first, eh, I'd say four or five miles... On the course is a lot of sand roads, and they had a they had had a storm for the previous couple of days before the race that had dumped a lot of rain and left numerous large puddles straddling the road, these dirt roads side to side, and so you had to sort of skirt them through the bushes, and it turned those early sections into a bit of a steeplechase. But as a pacer. I'm supposed to maintain pace, no matter what. So I did. And I lost everyone who was trying to keep up with me. Because they struggled with the steeplechase sections. I was trying to run by the overall average pace on my watch, which was a mistake. I figured if my overall average was 822, 823, I'd be right on that 150 finish time. And I ended up being right on an 823... I slowed down a little at the end because I was all alone and I thought I might be going too fast. And that turned out to be a mistake because I crossed the line 30 seconds too slow, which is a cardinal sin in the pacing business. I'll probably get excommunicated from the pacing group 
Pacing isn't as easy as it sounds. Even though my average pace was exactly where it needed to be based on my watch, I missed the clock time. And it's a bit befuddling. You say, why is that? Well, your watch is always a little bit off on the distance, and I guess that's worth 30 seconds. And it looks like the only strategy that works really is, you know, a strategy that is going to work every time is to have the mile splits written out hard copy and check every mile mark that you pass on the course, old school pacing. And even then, you want to plan to be a minute or so early on top of that just to make up for any variability. But I got it done. I didn't feel great. Another small racing failure in what has been several months of disconsolate results and discontent. My whatever it is pain in my butt was screaming in the car ride home. I was a bit blue and a bit of a blue mood rolling into the last week of taper for Bay State. And that, my friends, is what we will talk about in section one. In our interview today, we talk with Matt about his recent experience of riding his bike unsupported across the Trans Am route and then writing about it. In section two, I'm going to rant a little on the current hustle culture. As I was lined up in the starting corral in Lowell, the city of my birth, a city that I have some small history with, I had one of those those pure moments that I just love about racing. When you are there on race morning, all the waiting is over. All the decisions have been made. It's a pure moment. The expectations and worrying are washed away by the rising sun. A volunteer singing the national anthem fills your soul and dampens your eyes. It is a pure place, without affectation, without choice, and filled with the energy of being set free onto that course. How many pure moments like that are left in our world? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Bay State Half Marathon 2019. Reduction and Redemption. Many times we have said to friends about running a qualifying marathon, it's all mental. But that's the truth with any physical act, right? Getting out of bed in the morning is all mental. Walking up the stairs is mental. Climbing out of your car is mental. It's a throwaway statement, a throwaway sentiment. And that's not what we mean anyhow. Of course it's a physical act. Of course you need to train in such a way as to be prepared to act. What we mean is that even though this thing is a physical act, it is not a physical act alone. It is a physical act that may only be accomplished by a mental condition. (laughs) The physical nature of this thing is a given. The physical element is table stakes. It is the mental that tips the balance. A good marathon effort is the great coming together of the mental and that physical preparation. What we mean is that without the mental part, you don't stand a chance. The mental part is believing that you are capable, that you have trained well, that you can overcome whatever happens. This mental condition spans the whole enterprise. It can't just arrive on race day. It is a thing born out of audacity. Many months, even years earlier, when you decide, this is a thing I can and will do. All of this, the mental and the physical, must travel together and arrive at the destination race hand in hand and ready to fight. That is the mental state we refer to. It's not that this mental container that wraps around your training and racing is the only thing you need. It is that it is vital in its purpose. Without it, your training and racing lie like a lifeless, soulless, twitching thing. That's where my mind was coming out of a long spring and summer of listless and episodic training and racing. 
The Nantucket Half Marathon was not the vacation lark I had hoped for. I executed a sloppy race, did a poor job pacing for the 150 group. I felt heavy and slow on those rolling sand hills in the island sun. That pain in my right butt was twinging again like it had been since Boston. I had recovered poorly from the Beantown Marathon a month prior. Physically, my heart, my lungs were strong from all the miles, but my confidence was shot. The beatdown at Boston in April after pouring everything I could into the training. The power loss at Vermont in May. And another discouraging beating at Beantown in August. The pattern was stuck in place like some ugly parasite. As I rode the ferry back to Hyannis from Nantucket, I realized that it's all mental. And I didn't have the mental fitness to race another marathon at Bay State a scant seven days hence. It was all mental, and I didn't have it. As much as I pride myself on being indestructible, as much as I believe in the ability of fate to pull a good race from the ashes of any poor training campaign, as it has in the past, As much as I know anything can happen when you show up time and time again, I was defeated. An army defeated should not array for battle. There on that boat ride, I decided that I didn't have the mental capacity to suffer through another beating at the Bay State Marathon, and I would do the smart thing and drop to the half. The little quit. Of course I could run 26 miles, but I didn't want to. Next day, I called my local physio, whom I trust, to see if I could make an appointment to find out what was really going on in my butt. To my surprise, they had an immediate opening. This doctor knows me and knows what I do, so I don't have to tell him my whole life story. I can just get to the pointy point. And I needed to know what this chronic pain was so that I could treat it the right way get back to work. I had self-diagnosed, always a mistake, tendonitis in the high hamstring, but I didn't really know. I wanted him to dig in there and tell me which of the many moving pieces was slightly ajar. And as is usual, in the case, when we self-diagnose, I was overcomplicating things. It wasn't some arcane or esoteric injury that only I, because you know, I'm so special, could get. It was simple piriformis muscle pain. Call it what you want. Tightness, strain, micro-tearing. It's a common top 10 running injury, right up there with runner's knee and Achilles tendonitis. Not an impacted butt fly larva, not nerve-ending necropathy, not even the Spanish flu, just plain old overuse piriformis. And you know how you fix that? You stretch it. This tight little butt muscle was constricting my whole chain of muscles up and down the back of my right leg. And when it tightened up late in those races, that's what it was. And this is where I felt the dark clouds in my running mentality start to part a bit and the glimmer of the hunter's moon peeking through. But what about Bay State? I struggled with reversing that decision to drop to the half. But I was still under train, still had that niggling, if commonplace, injury, and still mentally beaten down from too much of life. As the race approached during the week, I saw that other runners from my club would be there. My training buddy Brian would race for his 2021 qualifier. My friend Tom would make his first comeback, half marathon, after many long months beating back the scourge of prostate cancer. And others would be racing too. And it makes you feel a bit of a self-centered heel when your friends are celebrating life and you're obsessed with failure. It wasn't a lock. I stood around the expo on Saturday for a long handful of minutes describing the course nuances to those who hadn't run it before. I gave advice to a young man who was running his first marathon. And I switched my bib 
to a half marathon bib because I was not physically fit enough to justify a marathon try, but really I wasn't mentally fit enough and I had come to grips with that. I ran only twice during the week, a couple of easy hour-long runs in the woods with Ollie. I felt pretty good when I woke up on race morning. I had no goal, no plan, just show up and run an easy half. Nothing riding on it. Race morning was cold and pure and dry. A perfect day for racing. Perfect! I smiled inwardly and joked with the other runners about kicking myself to have dropped to the half on the first perfect day we've gotten all year. And we were off. I hung in the pack and chatted with people. It was a slow first couple miles with the crowd, but we were moving well. I figured I'd aim to do this half at the same pace I would have needed for a 335 marathon, lacking any other specific goals. Maybe hang around an eight-minute mile, see how it felt. As we approached the split, where the marathon breaks off from the half, I found myself running with the 340 marathon pace group. And looking at my watch, I noticed that their pacer was a little fast, and I commiserated with them, but I let them go as we reached the split. And by this time, I was pacing a couple of young ladies and comparing notes. I don't run a lot of half marathons, so my pace math isn't as ready, but I did what I could to coach them along. We were knocking off, yeah, right around eight-minute miles, and it seemed like a reasonable pace, a bit faster than they were aiming for. So I cautioned them to throw in a couple of slow miles as we got ready to turn the corner at the 10K mark. And then a funny thing happened. I felt good. We turned the corner for that second loop, and my marathon brain said, you're going too fast, you're going to crash. But my runner's brain reminded us, yeah, I'm only running a half, so who cares if I'm on pace to crash at mile 16? And I began to race. I accelerated a little bit and felt good, so I held it at a nice tempo pace. My heart rate and lungs were fine. It felt like a mid to high zone three effort. My legs felt fresh from the week off. I dropped my pace on these well-worn roads of Lowell down into the 720-730 range to see how it felt, and it felt good. And that was that. I was racing. My form was good and clean. My effort was steady. The second 10K slid by like an old friend I hadn't seen in a while. I lost my lady friends in the rearview mirror in those first couple accelerations and was casually picking off runners as I went. It got a little hard in the last couple miles, but nothing to write home about, and I held that pace into the finish. I pushed through the finish, exhilarant and happy. Here was a runner. Here was a good and capable man. Here was redemption. And two of the ladies were in the chute behind me, and I was amazed. They had latched onto my energy as I dropped the pace and hung on to set large personal records. I was their beacon as well. It wouldn't qualify me for Boston. It wouldn't qualify me for anything. But it was a mental victory. I had swept the mumbling demons from my mind. A small victory. But on small victories, empires are built. I can run. I can race. I'm not spent. I can do anything. I can be anything. I'm not afraid. It's all mental. And now for today's featured interview. So, Matt, this is interesting. You reached out to me. You just uh, wrote a book about your experiences of riding your bicycle across, uh, I guess, the official Trans Am route. Was that the Ram route? Anyhow, why don't you give me the 200 words on who you are, what you did, and all that. Yeah, so I'm an endurance athlete and writer. I tried my hand at marathons, 50-mile trail runs, triathlons. But in the last few years, I've been really focused on ultra-endurance cycling, doing 24-hour races, 400-milers, and most notably, like you mentioned, the Trans Am Rate, which is a 4,000-mile self-supported bike race from Astoria, Oregon to Yorktown, Virginia. Subsequently wrote a book titled As Fast As You Can, and it's about the journey I undertook 
it's very much a story about man against nature, man against himself, and how we overcome suffering when it feels like everything is stacked against us. I've also started a website, enduranceforlife.net, and my hope is that my book and the content I write about can be helpful both to the people that are crazy like me with ultra-endurance stuff, but also for people that are happy either excelling at their age group or exercising purely for health benefits because I think there are some universal wisdom to be extracted from sports. Yeah, it takes you places, that's for sure. It's a window into, uh, I don't know, different realities, as it were. You mentioned the RAM route. So the, the difference between RAM, which is Race Across America, and Trans Am, which is I did, uh, RAM is about 1,000 miles shorter, and you get support. So people are, like, handing you bottles as you go, doing everything for you. And what you have to do if you're riding Trans Am is you carry absolutely everything yourself. You're not allowed to accept help from any sort of support crew or anything like that. You have to do literally everything yourself. So finding water, food, taking care of your bike, and doing all of that along the way, along with trying to put out 200 miles a day. Yeah, I think people probably will have heard of the Race Across America or maybe seen that documentary. So there's a famous sort of indie documentary that shows these guys trying to stay awake while they're riding their bikes. Um, Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, when you're running, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to fall down. But when you're going 20, 25 miles an hour on a bike, some bad things can happen when you fall asleep. But I kind of feel like I had some hand in this uh, in this adventure. <laughs> you and did. It was quite. It was pleasantly surprising for me when I was reading your book this week, actually over the weekend, and I stumbled upon a, a quote, and I go, "Oh, that who's that?" And it was me. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, that was all very those... soon. You were just talking about it too. That when you're biking, anything can happen. And I woke up one morning, started to get going, going down a little hill. And I guess I was just still a little bit too tired, and I skidded out and, you know, ripped a bunch of the skin off of my elbows, knees. And that was when I thought of one of the quotes from when you were training. I can't remember if it was for your 50-miler or if you did a 100-miler. Yeah, I think that was the 100-miler. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that was my buddy Eric, who I just ran Ledbo with. He said, yeah, it's supposed to suck. It's a great quote. Then the light bulb went off. Like, oh, yeah. It doesn't get better. You just live with it. Yeah. Yeah. So so I have to ask a question that you hate to get asked and probably don't have an answer to. But I'm going to ask it in a different way because nobody just wakes up and decides to do something like this unless they have some sort of demon. People who do this sort of thing, there's the answer they give the people when they ask them, why did you do this? That has something to do, oh, I wanted to challenge myself. Oh, you know, (laughs) I wanted to see what I was made of. But then there's the real answer, which is, there's something inside you that made you do this. So what was that thing that's inside you that made you do this? Yeah. Well, the short answer comes from, you know, you mentioned a documentary on RAM. There's also a really good documentary called Inspired to Ride about the Trans Am journey. And so I saw that a few years ago, and I couldn't get it out of my head. But even earlier than that, I grew up kind of aspiring to be, I've always wanted to be really good at some sort of sport. You know, watching the Olympics, it was, man, I want to be a gymnast like them. And as I grew older, one of the things that I veered towards was kickboxing and Muay Thai. And I was very successful at that. And, of course, one of the things you do when you're trying to be good at fighting is you have to do a lot of cardio. It's a lot of running to have the endurance for that. And I used to go on a lot of the just eight, three-mile runs, but also I would start doing longer 10, 15, 20-mile trail runs on the weekend just because that was enjoyable. And it might not have gone anywhere, but about five years ago, I had a pretty bad accident helping one of my coaches at the time get ready for one of his fights. I thought everything was fine after we got done sparring, and I went home, went to sleep, woke up the next day, thought, you know, my leg kind of hurt. And I was getting ready to go to work, and I was looking around for something that I could kind of use as a cane to hobble my way to the car and get going. And the pain just started getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, I was stuck laying on my bed because I literally couldn't move the leg at all. And I had to sort of turn myself around on the bed because my phone was on the other side. I couldn't even sit up to reach the phone. And finally, I was able to call my friend who came and got me took me to the hospital, and I ended up having to get surgery for something called compartment syndrome, which is basically where the blood in your leg swells up so much that the fascia that wraps your muscles acts as a tourniquet. And I told him, no, I don't want to get surgery. You know, I'm going to tough it out. Surgery sounds bad to me. And the doctor looked at me and he said, you can either get surgery 
or you're going to die because the muscle is going to atrophy, die, release toxins, and it's going to shut down your internal organs. And I was like, I got it. Don't got to tell me twice. I'll get the surgery. And that sort of, it didn't end things with uh, competing in Muay Thai and kickboxing, but it sort of made things more difficult. And over the next couple of years, I found myself running a lot more, started getting into triathlons. And then when I saw that uh, Inspired to Ride documentary, I was like, this, taking care of yourself, trying to put out as many miles as you can every day, this feels like something I would be good at. So it's all part of my little journey to try to be the best that I can be, I suppose. So this was sort of a uh, a fig to death, so to speak. <laughs> yes. I was summarizing. So this thing that you did, you did a lot of these uh, 24-hour-plus type of legs. So you didn't go out to ride across the country just casually. You did it um, exactly. you know, yeah. for time, right? You tried to do it in 20 days, which is pretty short to get that much mileage yeah. in. But on a bike, you, you can kind of do it. So 20 days is quick. You ended up doing it in 25, yeah. but it's still quick. And you can only do that if you're doing like you were doing, which is 200, 300 mile, quote unquote, days, because sometimes those days are longer than 24 hours. So you're riding at exactly. night a lot. So, I mean, it's really, it's not when you're, what you did wasn't, hey, I'm going to go out and ride across country. It was, I'm going to go <laughs> ride across country quickly. Yeah. Yeah. To put it in perspective, the fastest time that got set this year the new record by a couple hours, I believe, is uh, 16 days and a few hours. So I was trying to get as darn close to the thing as I could, trying to hit 20 days. Didn't quite make it, you know, ended up taking a few days longer. But it was a really uh, fun isn't quite the word, but it's a very unique experience being on the limit of your ability every day, day after day. Yeah, and I think it, it's, it impresses me that it's not about fitness or ability. It's about yeah. something else, right? It's about being able to stay awake on a bicycle for 24 hours straight yeah. and being able to ride at night in rainstorms. But that, yeah, that was that's one more of than just fitness. That, fitness is sort of the, the ante for these things. And then yeah, this, the rest that was one of, of the is, things that, is, that pulled me towards this race more than RAM because with this, having to take care of yourself, all of those aspects that are outside of fitness really came into play. And it's amazing just how much little bits of time add up as you're trying to get food, you're trying to get water, you're think, you're stressing out because you don't know where you're going to sleep that night. All these little things take their toll and you have to be able to manage all of that stress and fatigue while still expressing your fitness as best you can. Yeah. And I, it's hard because once you go, I could read into the state you were in at the end yeah. of some of those long rides. And it's not just like, you know, everybody who is familiar with ultras understands that when you get out into the 20 plus hours, things get a little weird, but then you got to fix your bike or you got to talk yeah. to somebody. And it was like, you had yeah. to re-enter our reality from this other reality that you had uh, gone off to, to log all these miles on the bike and that struggle to like do these simple things like talk to somebody meant that yeah. you had to essentially re-enter reality to do that and it was kind of an interesting juxtaposition absolutely and that was one of the things that like really hit me every time because it's not that isolated of a route it's not like doing some of these other races like the tour divide you're absolutely just out in the middle of the nowhere because you are sort of surrounded by small town civilization it's a really weird experience going through small town after small town and having all these little interactions with people as you resupply and do this, that, or the other. <laughs> it's like I'm just off in my own little world. Yeah, and it was, and having to fuel yourself was awful, right? Because you're eating yeah. beef jerky and pop tarts and doing yeah, the, one of the 24, 36 hour pulls on nothing but really low quality nutrition. Yeah, one of the people I, uh, I talked to a lot was asking me if I would try to optimize the nutrition if I did the race again. I was like, I really, there's not a whole lot you can do because you're either mailing yourself food all 4,000 miles along the way that you can carry or you're limited to what's available. And a lot of times what's available is the single gas station that's in the town and it might be a lot of old bruised fruit that's not going to pack that well anyway or it's the processed Pop-Tarts and beef jerky, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And, like, that was a challenge that I didn't fully comprehend it before I got into this race, how 
after 20, 30 days, I have no idea what effect my diet had on me, but it certainly didn't help on top of the sleep deprivation, the total lack of recovery. You know, it was one more variable that was hard to tease apart from all the other little niggly wigglies going on in my body. Yeah, and when I was reading through that, I was thinking, you're lucky this was only 20 plus days because if you had stretched (laughs) that out to a few months, you would have died of rickets or, or something from that food. So what were the sort of the short-term, mid-term, long-term effects when you finally hung up the bike at the end? How long did it take you to get back to like, quote unquote, normal, mentally and physically? It was a huge sense of relief. That's always the biggest emotion, at least for me, after completing any sort of really big race is just the sense of relief that it's, it's, it's finally over. But it's interesting you mentioned mentally because it was a really weird feeling because 20 days is long enough that that had become my new normal. So to then wake up the next day and not get on my bike and ride for 16 hours straight, it was very strange. It didn't take too long because it was something that I had been devoted to and kind of knew what the experience was going to be like going into it. The first thing I did when I got back, funnily enough, was I took my dog, Haley, and we went for a little run around the block. And I kind of jokingly thought of that as doing like a little mini biathlon, triathlon type of deal. They might have just biked 4,000 miles, but you can always still take care of your dog. But did you have any, uh, a lot of times people do these big things like this. They have a big, and you know this from doing other campaigns, you have this big sort of emotional letdown at the end, right? And part of it's you're losing your goal, or you say, oh, great, what do I do now? And part of it's um, bio, right? Your biology is messed up, and you get, you've been running on adrenaline so long, you get this sort of uh, crash, right? Yeah, that was one of the things that I got very acutely aware when I was a fighter, because it might sound strange to say, but the emotional highs and lows of fighting can be even higher than any other sport that I've done because there's a tremendous amount of pressure and training on the line. And then it all comes down to just a few minutes and that can go, you win or you lose. And the letdown or ecstasy is, is, is extremely heightened. But then after that, you obviously don't have a goal anymore. So with endurance sports, I've always been very conscious. The way I battle that is I try to always have something next on the horizon before I complete my race. So I knew going into this that the next year I was going to really focus on 24-hour races again because I thought it would be really cool to take the experience from this 20-day sojourn and try to transfer that ability into 24-hour short races. So that really helped me because even though it had all of those aspects of kind of being an emotional letdown and where do I go from here, I sort of had a goal in mind. And after a few weeks of just taking it easy, I was back on the bike and I was really focused on the next year because I kind of had this plan going into it. And that's always always really helped. Yeah. So you don't allow yourself any of that time to think about it. You just keep moving. Yep. Exactly. So, I really what, hate the feeling of being lost. And like, I don't really, we work so hard and we pour so much of ourselves into these events that I really, if I can do anything to avoid entering that state, I try to do it. Yeah. And one of the things you talked about was, again, it was only 20 plus days that you were able to survive the, the calorie deficit, but even eating yep. pizzas and Pop-Tarts and whatever you can put down your throat, you're burning so many calories, especially going yeah. 24 hours at a time, that there's just yeah. no way to make up that deficit. So how much weight did you lose across the ride? I was amazed that I only lost 15 pounds. I was sort of expecting to be more emaciated than I was when I came back. But I guess, like you said, since it's 20 days, there's kind of, and I'm guessing that my metabolism did all sorts of weird things to try to conserve energy, even though there's a fixed amount of calories that are going to come out as a result of pedaling. I'm sure my kind of normal metabolic rate was just going down, down, down every day of the journey. Yeah, right. You'll be thankful for that when you get to be my age and uh, you, you <laughs> can live on you can live on a thousand calories a day. Yeah. I read an interesting article a few weeks ago talking about the upper limit of uh, ultra endurance sport, and they basically looked at like Tour de France riders, some uh, 
cross-country runners, but not like regular cross-country, you know, literally from one side of the country to the other and track their metabolic rate on each day. And they uh, supposedly, according to their little study, they were able to figure out kind of the maximum that you could burn each day because after a certain point, it would just get to be too much. I just, I found that interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it's all interesting. So you wrote this book, which is essentially you kept a journal, which must have been hard. After riding yeah. for 36 hours, it must have been hard to sit down and go, okay, now I'm going to take some notes. <laughs> yeah, and in the beginning, it was pretty good. And then honestly, the last half or so, I maybe averaged one post a day. That um, It was a lot when I got back of backtracking and trying to figure out exactly which days I missed because I would lump multiple days into one post. But yeah, I would fall asleep on my phone trying to get out a few words so that I would have some sort of recording of everything. And then I would wake up the next morning having not even come close to finishing that and been like, well, it's time to go. But it was very yeah. helpful. I don't know that I could have written the book otherwise because with the journal entries, I was able to sort of refresh my memory. But without that, I think there would have just been huge gaping holes and everything. Now, my memory is poor enough as it is, but you combine sleep deprivation, lack of nutrition, and a lot of fatigue into that, and it would have been a lost cause. Yeah, I mean, I agree, right? And that's what I always tell people if you want to write a good race report is take your bullets down right afterwards, right? Take the bullets yeah. down. Because not only is it a memory thing, but it's also the emotional state. That emotional state that you're in, you know, is not going to be persistent. And yeah. when you go back to remember that, you're going to remember it in a different way than it was. Because you'll start rewriting history almost immediately after these kind yeah. of things, right? So you're taking notes on your phone. Jesus, that would drive me crazy. I so, was really grateful, so, though, that um, I think it was early as day two or three, exactly what you were saying about rewriting history almost immediately. But I think the passage is called Quitter's Road or something. That's the actual chapter title. But I kind of wrote out for myself exactly why I was done with the race. I was ready to go home. And because I did it in the moment, I was never able to rewrite that. And I've really enjoyed going back to that and looking at that and just being like, wow, it only took two days and things already got so bad that I, I was willing to throw in the towel. Yep. Yep. And there was some descriptive prose in there. So I think you, I can see where you went back in and you sort of fattened it up a little bit. Yep. Good for you. And you self-publishing this? Are you going to try and get it out to a publishing house or what are you going to do? The route I took, it's self-published through Amazon, but I have my own ISBN, so I have the right to the paperback. So I've been able to go to like yeah. local bookstores and get it there because Amazon doesn't have ultimate control over it. But yeah, I went the self-published route. It's available on Amazon yep. as fast as you can. All right. I was going to ask you that. Where can people find it? But give me yeah. – uh, we'll connect afterwards. I You should talk to the folks uh, over at Velo Press because they do – this is their mm -hmm. sort of genre, as it would probably make sense because they're called Velo Press, right? What route did you take for your book? So the first one, I did the exact same thing. The um, mm -hmm. it was short stories, I just did the exact same thing. I did it with Amazon just to see how it all worked. Um, exactly. But I have the ISBN, uh, right? And then the the Marathon BQ one, I did the same way, but I didn't do a physical printed book. Right. I did the Kindle and I did the audio. And the audio actually sells way better than the um, than the Kindle. So people like audio these yeah. days. Yeah, it's been one of the yep. things I've been thinking about doing is converting it over to audio. Because I did, I listened to your your Marathon BQ book, and it was it was tremendous for uh, that's, that's the fittest runner I've ever been is following that plan. I was amazed how fast I became doing that. Yeah, as long as you don't break yourself, it works great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did feel like I became a little fragile. It was it was impressive. Yeah, so that's good to get fast for a short period of time. But you do that too long, you just break yourself. But, uh, yeah, I got yeah. that guy from the Midwest to read it for me. He did a great job because he had that great yeah, Midwestern isn't that the same guy, voice. Isn't that the same guy that did uh, Born to Run or, or whatever it is? No, I don't think so. No. Okay. Just some, I, some I guy recognized I, him from something. Yeah. No, I got I, – I forget. That was three years ago, four years ago. I forget now. But all right. So I'm going to move you to the exit here. I guess the, the big question is what would you learn from this? What did it enable in your life? Sounds like your girlfriend's still with you, so it didn't ruin your relationship. <laughs> what would you get out of this? I think my biggest – takeaway from this. And this was something that's always a takeaway whenever we do 
endurance events, but it was kind of highlighted to me by doing something as big as this was everything kind of seemed easier afterwards. Like when I was back at my job, right. when something would go horribly wrong, I would just kind of smile to myself and be like, you know, you've been through worse than this. And like yeah. that has been a really, just, it's just been a fantastic takeaway. And now I kind of appreciate that every time I do another event, I'm like, oh, you're going to take something away from this and things are going to seem easier afterwards, at least a little bit. Yeah. Yep, it's good learning. All right, I'm going to let you go, and uh, we'll talk more, all right? All right, take care, Chris. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Hustle. What's the point? I chafe against the current culture of hustle. There seems to be this belief that getting ahead, whatever that means, is the be-all and end-all of human existence. I know it's always been this way, but I'm tired. I'm tired of shamelessly, aggressively, self-satisfied, and mostly belligerent, successful men, and yes, it's usually men, yelling at us that all we need to do is work harder, work longer, work smarter, hustle. Solves all those problems. And part of what bothers me is that, like all good cons, there's a kernel of truth in this. Certainly, if you work harder and focus on whatever it is, you can overcome inertia and get stuff done. That's the truth. The lie part is that it somehow is the panacea for all your life ills. Another worrying thing is that this assumption of universal efficacy of hustle allows the hustle pushers to blame anyone who has any challenge with being lazy. That's a simple logic. If you hustle, you'll find success. So therefore, if you've got challenges, hustle some more, you lazy slub. The dangerous part of this con is what happens when the acolyte can't run fast enough to keep up with the hustle wagon, when they fall off the back from mental or physical exhaustion. The hustle wagon moves on. There is no second thought, no pausing to help the fallen. You couldn't keep up. It's your own fault. They've got big things to do. The reason it is a con is that the break point is built into the assumptions. The structure of the con is that it doesn't matter what your physical or mental inventory is. You can overcome anything by focus and hustle. What happens when you hit the wall? Hustle more. But who really wins when the army of inspired hustle themselves to death in the gears of the machine? The machine wins. The dealer wins. The game wins. The house wins. You have invested 110% of your health and personal capacity in the game. And like the casino victim jacked up on adrenaline and besotted with the need to win, you lose. You slink away broken and damaged with empty pockets. The hustlers will say that no one is hurt in this game. That by playing the game you come out forged and stronger. How does that help you when you've got nothing left to give? Somehow the inspired acolyte is convinced to ignore the bet, even when Pareto knows that 80% of them will end up as wreckage. Because statistics don't care how hard you hustle. And it's a moving curve, too. If you hustle harder, everyone else has to hustle harder as well, just to keep up. The best hustlers tell a tale of many failures that they have wretched through and emerged Phoenix-like to their current high-powered life. They say things like, who cares if I lose it all? I'll just do it again. And a hustle is very American. That one can rise above anything through hard work and wits is our cultural narrative. Level the playing field and the cream will rise to the top. It's that churn that has made us. We don't just win games. We move on to invent new games so we can win those too. Unbridled hustle gives the hustlers an excuse to do bad things to everyone else. The logic says that if you are too slow to keep up, then you don't deserve to be treated as an equal. And this enables the categorization and demonization of entire classes of people. It's a short leap when the ends justify the means from hustle to rapaciousness. 
Hustle becomes a smokescreen for racism, sexism, ageism. If you can't win, it's your own fault. The playing field is level and you're just lazy or stupid or undeserving. This fetishizing and glamorization of hustle is manifest in the boom times, when the rising economic tide lifts all boats. The hustlers don't realize that they're participating in a great cyclical largesse. They think they caused it. They think they invented it. It's ironic that the winners of the hustle game then spend their fortunes trying to find the meaning of life. The con gets them too. They got sold the same bill of goods. They won the game and ended up with the realization that there was no game to be won. Now they need to meditate and found charities. This is a topic I need to think through more. I see the great democratizing value of hustle. I understand the power of this competitive drive to change the world. I'm not sure I have an answer. It's one of those things where the answer is tucked into the folds of nuance and needs to be pried out gingerly. Let's leave it with a warning. From one old hustler to the next generation. When you get hyper-focused on one track, you become fragile, and you typically end up confused or unfulfilled. Lift your head up. And look around at the things you're missing. An engine cannot run in the red zone forever. It's okay to pull over and look at the view every once in a while. You need to change that oil, sharpen that saw. This is not a winner-takes-all game. You, me, and the hustlers, we're all on the same journey. So find your journey, find your balance. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have pedaled nonstop across the country to the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-418. Time to put some nut butter on those saddle sores. I was flying back from Miami this week and looking out the window when the following words bubbled to the top of my brain. Clouds boil up out of the southeast humidity, escaping from the cauldron of the world. That's how my brain works sometimes. It paints pictures with words. But let's talk about something important. Ollie. Ollie the Collie. Last week we started puppy class, which is a very good thing because he is a wild, wild animal. Technically, I could just train him myself without the class, but this, as in all things, is better with a coach. Going in, I was pretty sure that Ollie would be that crazy, uncontrollable puppy in puppy class because he's got so much energy and he's a really busy dude. I was pleasantly surprised to find that Ollie was the smartest, calmest puppy there. It's a border collie thing. When it's time to work, they just fall in line. He picked up the commands right away, didn't cause any trouble. He's a good dog. Gonna be a good dog. And I forgot to mention last show that I actually met up with Tim when I was in Chattanooga a couple weeks ago, and we went for a trail run at night up on Signal Mountain, and it was good to see him. He's retired now, and he's planning to through-hike the Appalachian Trail next summer. There you go. These long... Endurance events like this, like the Appalachian Trail and Matt's Trans Am, these can be game changers. Matt's a great example of just deciding to do something and doing it in a way and how that changes your life. It's one of those things that will become a fulcrum for his life journey, right? That changed his whole trajectory. And if you think about your life's trajectory, we tend to fall into a path and either consciously or unconsciously build the conditions that keep us on that path. And one of these big events like this is a great lever to pry yourself out of that rut. And I've got a bit of a funny story, maybe not funny, maybe amusing, maybe interesting, about Matt's interview. As you may or may not know, I have an editor for these interviews, one of the most time-consuming and hard-to-automate parts of the podcasting process is the audio editing of the interviews. The process is you have to play the interview, listen to it, and cut out all the bad bits. And by definition, it's a very hard thing to do. You have to 
understand what's being said well enough to know whether it's pertinent or not. And I do my best to be consistent and clean, but some of the interviewees are harder than others. Sometimes we go down non-value added, i.e. boring rat holes that need to be ferreted out. Sometimes I get a real talker or I lose track of time and the interview has to be significantly shortened. It's an editorial job, right? What do you take out? It's very difficult. And I have had many good interview editors over the last many years that that we've been in business here at Run Run Live. And currently, I work with Dmitry, who lives in Moscow. And he does a good job. And he seems to have learned my method well enough to make these tricky edits, these tidy bits. And I pay him for each show, which is one of the things I use subscription money for. And it doesn't seem to bore him too badly, which is good. I have had editors quit on me, basically saying, I can't take any more of this. (laughs) So sometimes he'll comment on what he thought was a good or interesting topic or person. But with Matt's interview, Dimitri was very enthusiastic. He came back and he said that he himself was a, air quotes, bike packer as well and wondered how he could get a copy of Matt's book. So I hooked him up. So here's a guy that I essentially work with every week that knows a shitload about my life that I've never met and know nothing about and lives in Moscow. That's the world we live in today. And as weird as that sounds, this conversation with Matt resonated and made a connection. Think about that. You never know which conversation or which thing you do is going to make a connection. So keep doing that stuff, right? Do that epic stuff and keep having those conversations. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. Someday everything's gonna be different When I paint my masterpiece You ready? You ready to go? Let's go Hello and welcome 